listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. What does it mean to live? How do you live? What for? The sense of contribution to society. Make the society a little better place when you leave. That was deeply planted within my soul. When some little student complaining about immorality of destroying human lives and the environment and cities and so on, they didn't like that. On the 5th of August 1945, a young teenage girl called Setsuko had just started another school day in the city of Hiroshima. At 8.16am, as she and her classmates were pledging their allegiance to the Emperor of Japan before lessons started, an American bomber dropped Little Boy on the city, the first nuclear weapon ever to be used in anger. After a blinding flash of blue-white light, Setsuko-san fell down unconscious before waking up to find the school burning and many of her classmates already dead. She made her way out of her collapsing school with a handful of other survivors, slowly trekking across the city to the shelter of a nearby hill, and in her testimonies, which she delivers worldwide, she describes the extraordinary and horrific sights she encountered along the way and in the days and weeks after the attack. While the initial effects of the bomb were evident, the Japanese were unaware of the lingering effects of fallout and residual radiation. And as the weeks went by, fewer and fewer of her former classmates turned up at the makeshift school on the hill. Some years later, Setsuka-san moved to Canada, where she initiated a campaign against nuclear weapons with the Japanese government. And for the last 40 years, she has been a prominent voice in the disarmament and non-proliferation movements of North America and Japan. I'm Sebastian Brixey-Williams, and here, Annabel Roberts and I, at the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy at SOAS, speak to Setsuko Thurlow about her work as a peace activist and as one of diminishing number of hibakusha, the Japanese word used to collectively refer to the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. She begins her story describing both the harsh difficulties lived by Japan after the bomb and her optimism in growing up as a teenager in a democratizing country after World War II. Physically, it was a rather limited existence. But we were alive. After all, the war ended. So-called democracy was introduced. Boys and girls can behave on an equal footing. Those things are tremendous to me. I could go to bed wearing nighties and pajamas. That was an important, really? significant <laughs> thing, yes. Yeah? Because we couldn't go to bed in those things, in nighties and pajamas. Because the moment we heard the siren, we had to dash the shelter, you see. So, and at night, you have to darken the house by pulling all the heavy drapes and the curtains. Only one light was you allowed. That meant everybody had to be in one room, reading or cooking or crocheting or whatever. That kind of very limited existence. But now we could turn on the lights in every room, and uh, that freedom I enjoyed. 
and I was at the girls' school. I was a leader, always making sure that the girls were busily involved. The head of the YWCA, which was the biggest student program. So I enjoyed leadership. If I was at the mixed school, boys and girls, maybe I couldn't have enjoyed that freedom. <laughs> but there I was able to, yeah. And so I started the school newspaper and uh, this and that. And I was making speeches when a principal went to the United States to speak about Hiroshima experience. And when he goes, when he came back, when another president went to the States and then came back, I was always on behalf of the student body making the speeches, welcome speeches and send off speeches. But anyway, life was fantastic. That was to me one of the best time. And so young, full of questions, and uh, that's really gave me the foundation for social activism. Not just to be peace activist, but what does it mean to live? How do you live? What for? The sense of contribution to society. Make the society a little better place when you leave. That was deeply planted within my soul. And then, um, I finished university and they gave me scholarship to go to the state to learn how to become a social worker. And then my experience in the West, in North America, started. We asked Setsuko-san to expand on these experiences and about how she was received in the very country, the United States of America, that was responsible for the Hiroshima tragedy. Coming to the States really opened my eyes because within a couple of days, uh, they interviewed me, the press interviewed me, some new creature who survived in Hiroshima is coming. They just wanted to see. I had the two eyes and 10 fingers. I don't know, I'm being nasty. <laughs> but anyway, that was at the time of Bikini Atoll incident. So I told them honestly, and they didn't like what they heard. They just blindly trusted, believed Mr. Truman's national narrative, which is nothing but a myth. And my understanding of that historical event, American interpretation are different things. No wonder they didn't like, and they sent me all that hate, hateful letters. So at that time, I really wondered, what is my responsibility as a survivor? Do I pretend, put the zipper over my oath? Even if it's difficult, I have to be honest. And I chose the latter. Yeah, it was not easy. Why do you think so many people were so hostile to what you had to say? Do you think it was just I think the Americans truth? were just... Of course, they were angry about Pearl Harbor. We started the war. We have to accept that, and, and people and the nation apologize about that. And then the war prolonged. A lot of 
young men who were being killed. And let's get rid of all those Japs. And the United States were determined to finish us. And they did finish it in a magnificent way by having those two powerful bombs. I think they were enjoying triumphant sense of success, scientific and engineering success. And economically, United States would really at the top in their history. Nobody had the right to criticize what the United States was doing. After all, they are almighty nature. We have to accept that. So, when some little student complaining about immorality of destroying human lives and the environment and cities and so on, they didn't like that. Their patriotism was so strong. And at that time, the, their hostile relationship with the communism, you know, they used to say, if you want to speak about peace, go to Moscow and speak. We are okay. They are the bad guys. That kind of mentality was very strong. McCarthyism was still having the power in the mind of people. So I said, well, raise the money. Send me to Moscow. I have the same message to them as well as the Americans. Americans have been so arrogant, and they continue to be arrogant, I think. And I don't think enough voice is not telling them that. I suggested to Setsuko-san and Monsignor Kent from the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, who joined us for the interview, that the bomb hadn't been responsible for Japan's decision to surrender on the 15th of August, ten days after she crawled out of her school. Rather, I asked, was it possible, as writers like Ward Wilson at the British American Security Information Council have suggested, that Stalin's surprise declaration of war on the 8th of August and rapid invasion of Japanese territory was the real cause? What would that mean for the West's deeply held assumptions about nuclear weapons as a force to maintain the international liberal order? I agree with that. American historians want to think, well, those wonderful bombs did it. I don't think so. That was the important element, but one of the elements, the reasons, factors. But to me, the very important reason was to prevent Russians, USSR, yeah, from coming to that part of the globe, right? I think so. For a long time, we have been saying that. But the American historian once still say it's a bomb. No, I kept saying, yes, bombs are important factor, but more important factor was this. Over 70 years after the nuclear weapons were dropped, the US and Japan now sit amongst each other's top partners in trade. And this year saw the US President, Barack Obama, visit the Hiroshima Memorial for the first time in American presidential history. We were interested to know whether it was possible for the bombing ever to simply be laid to rest as an archival event in US-Japan relations. Here, Setsuko-san discusses the political repercussions of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on Japan-US relations and the long-term influence of the events on security policy into the present day. I think right after the bombing, I think the world's attention was focused on humanitarian 
but soon as the political situation changed in Asia, like Korean War started in Vietnam and so on, I think U.S. emphasis became the military preparedness, and they started introducing all kinds of things, like they wanted to demilitarize Japan, and we had the peace constitution. But after a while, when the Korean War started and so on, they started pressuring Japan to rearm. We had the self-defense force to for the security of Japan, but gradually that body became stronger, stronger, greater budget and so on, and really preparedness for event. And uh, Vietnam thing was another big event too. So although they they say they wanted to demilitarize, to democratize Japan, gradually we went back to a rearmament mood. And democracy, where did it go? On the surface, yes. But basically, I think a lot of pressure coming from the United States. And Japan, being so poor, not economically recovered, became so dependent on U.S. power and became the partner with the U.S. nuclear strength. So it became totally subservient to U.S. policy. So situation changed dramatically. Japanese government on the surface, they say, Japan is the only nation which experienced the nuclear attack. Therefore, we know the problem involved, and we should be at the forefront of the world peace movement, but basically it's been totally manipulated, sometimes exploited by American forces for 70 years. This is why even at Geneva, and you know what the ambassador said, right? We will continue to depend on nuclear umbrella. And it's infuriating for survivors because domestically, Japanese government say, oh yes, we are with you, we are the only one who experienced, therefore we are for the abolition of nuclear weapons. So, naive people just trust everything they say, but when you come to the United Nations international conferences, they are doing exactly opposite. So somebody like me have to point out that's not what's happening outside. So, they don't like me. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I asked how it is that Japan, the only country to have directly suffered the effects of nuclear weapons use in wartime, could nevertheless today be a nuclear umbrella state, not possessing its own nuclear weapons, but remaining under the explicit protection of the United States of America's weapons. How comfortable do the Japanese people really feel with this? I would say the majority people want to get rid of the nuclear weapon. They are abolitionists. Not just the survivors, but the general public. But the government has been totally non-responsive. There are some right-wingers who are saying that we need our own nuclear weapon. The current um, political party 
the ruling political party. The Liberal Democratic Party is a ruling party. And unfortunately, uh, ever since the end of the Second World War, most of the time, Japan had been governed by that very conservative party. Occasionally, there was a short period of power uh, enjoyed by the Socialist Party. For example, about five years ago, where people just trounced the conservative element, and we were so happy uh, that the, the Liberal Party came into power. Now we can expect some change, change for better, and then, oops, my hearing aid is not behaving well. Uh, then the tsunami, mm -hmm. the earthquake, tsunami, and uh, nuclear power plant meltdown. And this party was so new on the job, and it made some mistakes. It didn't handle the situation very well, so they didn't last long, two, three years, maybe less than that and then conservative elements took over. And although the majority of people don't want to depend on nuclear energy for so-called peaceful purpose, and although majority of people want to get rid of nuclear weapons, that government is not responding at all. And they even want to go and rewrite the peace constitution, you know that. About a month ago, so, there was certain legislation, the resolution, which was just taken to the cabinet, and cabinet made a decision, not even to the parliament. That's a kind of arrogance, and without listening, just rushing. So when I heard that, that gentleman, the prime minister, is accompanying Mr. Obama to Hiroshima, I said, no. <laughs> He doesn't deserve it. He's been lying to people. I was curious to find out why the Japanese government was and is acting outside of the wishes of the Japanese people by remaining under the US's nuclear umbrella. Was it down to changing security context against the backdrop of the nearby Korean and Vietnam wars and perhaps today's rising China? Or could it be better explained by a strong nationalist undercurrent? Combination of both, I think. It was quite adjustment for Japanese to be defeated and uh, you know totally dependent on New Year's power. So that was a very important element. In light of the American government's recent decision to modernize its nuclear arsenal and Japan's statement of content to reside under a nuclear umbrella, Setsuko Sebenai turned to the future and her concerns that as the voices of survivors grow more distant, the world will forget the humanitarian cost of nuclear weapons. In her final reflections, Setsuko-san emphasizes our global responsibility to remember the Hiroshima tragedy. Many people are very concerned about that. And for example, city of Hiroshima, within the structure of the city government, they have the department called Peace Promotion Department, and they are really focusing on preventing what you just said, uh, creating the program. For example, they recruit the volunteers who would like to spend some time with the survivors, hear their stories, become more familiar, more intimately knowledgeable of what their experiences are, 
and uh, and learn about the issue from political, psychological, sociological, moral, you know, from all dimensions. And be the future interpreter or speaker because we are going to die. But somebody has to stay and play the role of passing on that part of history. So Hiroshima City, for example, is doing a very decent job. And it's not just a few weeks of orientation. Those people who volunteers, after their university, after their work, they come a few times a week and have the lesson, debate, discussion, and so on. They have three years training to do that. So they become quite well informed. And I was quite impressed when I heard the thoroughness of their training program. But I say to them, you can't really reproduce what we say. It's impossible. But you can still share the facts and information and understanding. So these are all efforts to make sure we don't forget what happened. Not because we want to solicit sympathy, but as a guide for how the whole world should be living. It's not just Hiroshima Nagasaki responsibility. It's a global responsibility. Over the past 70 years, Setsuko-san has spoken about her experiences thousands of times across the world. Now aged 83, she continues to campaign with tireless energy against nuclear proliferation. With luck, she and the Hibakusha of Hiroshima and Nagasaki will be the last generation to have to do so.